Listeners, I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. The True Crime Podcast Festival is back for 2022. The festival gives listeners the opportunity to mix and mingle with some of their favorite true crime and now paranormal podcasts. Who knows, you may even find a new one. The festival is being held in Dallas, Texas from August 26th through the 28th. The Good Pods app is a great way to follow the shows and even listen to a curated playlist of their most talked about episodes. Right now, we still have some early bird tickets available, so you can head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to buy your tickets. I'm going to put the link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. I'll also provide a link to the Good Pods app because it honestly is the best way to listen to podcasts. If you want more of me and more true crime topics in your life, download the Spotify Green Room app today. Every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, I host a show called True Crime Convos. I talk about pretty much anything related to true crime. If you have a case suggestion, feel free to let me know what it is, and I'll see you on the Spotify Green Room app. Have you ever been listening to the show and think to yourself, wow, I really wish I could just subscribe to their ad-free content, but there's so many apps involved to do that. Well, Apple Podcast has made it possible for you to subscribe to the show and get the ad-free content straight through the app. So we've made it available to all of our listeners on Apple Podcasts. So if you're interested in ad-free content, you can subscribe starting today. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lini. Although true crime has experienced a huge renaissance over the last several years, movies based on true crimes have been popular for decades. In the 1930s, many movies were made based on prominent gangsters of the time, such as Al Capone and Ma Barker. However, in the mid-30s, when the Hayes Code was enforced, much of the drama was watered down. It wasn't until the 1960s that violence became prevalent on the screen, and well-known movies based on true crime were made, such as In Cold Blood and Bonnie and Clyde. Of course, in the 1970s and 1980s, made-for-TV movies based on true stories became popular. Movies typically take some liberties about the crimes and often have to leave out important details to avoid a movie that's several hours long. Okay, on to the show. In 1997, the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil was released. The events of the movie and the murder it was based on took place in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah is a character in and of itself, who wears its languid days and Spanish moss-embossed trees like a painted lady, wears its beautiful gingerbread and vibrant colors. If you watch the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, you know there are many unique and eccentric people who live or lived in Savannah. This isn't necessarily specific to Savannah or even the South, but these individuals have been immortalized in book and film for the entire world to see. Some of the Savannah natives were not pleased at their portrayal, but that happens quite a bit. The movie itself was actually considered a flop, performing poorly at the box office and with critics. The book is a nonfiction novel, that is, certain artistic liberties were taken to make the book flow better, in a more linear fashion. 
In an author's note at the end of the book, John Barron says, All the characters in this book are real, but it bears mentioning that I have used pseudonyms for a number of them in order to protect their privacy. Though this is a work of nonfiction, I have taken certain storytelling liberties, particularly having to do with the timing of events. Where the narrative strays from strict nonfiction, my intention has been to remain faithful to the characters and to the essential drift of events as they really happened. For instance, in the book and movie, the author meets a suspect before the murder occurs, but in reality, John Barrent did not meet Jim Williams until after he had been on trial for murder. The movie is centered on Jim Williams, wealthy antique dealer and his criminal woes after he shoots his assistant in self-defense, Billy Hansen, in the movie, but in real life, Danny Hansford. Jim Williams was a well-known restorationist and antique dealer, moving in the elite Savannah social circles. He had moved to Savannah in 1955 and started restoring the older homes in the area, including the famous Mercer home he was living in at the time of the murder. The Mercer Williams home, as it is now known, dates back to the 1860s. General Hugh Mercer, the great-grandfather of the musician Johnny Mercer, began construction on the home in 1860, but construction halted when the American Civil War began. The home was eventually completed in 1866, but not by General Mercer. Jim Williams purchased the home in 1969 after it had been vacant for a while. For the next two years, Jim carefully restored the home, one of the more than 50 he restored in Savannah and the Low County during his 30-year career. On May 2, 1981, at 2.58 a.m., a call was placed to the Savannah Police Department by Jim Williams. He advised Officer Slaughter he had been involved in a shooting and requested police. Before he called the police, Jim had called a friend of his and said, I just had to shoot Danny. The court records did not identify his friend, but John Barron said it was Jim's former employee, Joe Goodman. Jim then called his attorney. The attorney, Joe, and Corporal Michael Anderson all arrived at Jim's home at the same time. When Corporal Anderson entered the home, he found Danny Hansford lying face down in the study, with his right arm stretched above his head and a pistol loosely held in his hand. Corporal Anderson checked for Danny's pulse in his right arm without moving his arm. Detectives soon arrived on the scene and began assessing the crime scene. Detective Raglan found smears of blood on Danny's right wrist and the hands wrapped loosely around the pistol. Danny had been shot three times, once in the back, chest, and above the right ear. There were bullet holes in the floor that matched the wounds in the victim's back. There was another hole around the head, but the victim's head was facing to the left rather than the right. There was also a chair by Danny's legs, and one leg of the chair was on Danny's pant leg. There were damaged papers on Jim's desk, indicating that a bullet had gone through them. Paper fragments were laying on top of the gun Jim fired. Gunpowder residue test on Danny did not pick up any gunpowder. Jim said, Danny had gone crazy and threw Jim against a door, left the room, toppled the grandfather clock in the hall, and came back into the study with a gun, threatening to shoot Jim Williams. The infamous line that Danny allegedly said was, I'm leaving tomorrow, but you're leaving tonight. Jim and Corporal Anderson both recalled an event that took place a month earlier, when Danny had flown into a rage, broken furniture, 
and shot a hole in the floor. In his report, the corporal apparently said there was a fresh bullet hole in the floor, but during Jim Williams' first trial, Corporal Anderson testified that they could not determine if the bullet hole in the floor on April 3rd was fresh or not. Danny Hansford had been living with Jim Williams for two years as a companion and something of a nurse because Jim suffered from various illnesses. Jim also said he was determined to help Danny because Danny was suicidal, drank too much, and took drugs regularly. However, George Hill, who told investigators he was Danny's best friend, said that Jim was paying Danny to sleep with him. Payment included cash and a car. George also said he knew Danny and Jim had fought not long before Danny died, because Danny had started dating a girl. Other individuals also said Jim had admitted to them that he was in a sexual relationship with Danny. On February 2, 1982, the jury found Jim Williams guilty of murder for shooting Danny Hansford. Newly elected district attorney Spencer Lawton celebrated his first murder conviction with the reading of the verdict. By February 7, 1982, Jim Williams was free on a 200,000 appeal bond. On Wednesday, January 5, 1983, Jim Williams' conviction was overturned by the Georgia Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled the prosecution failed to turn over information to the defense before the trial began. The information was the full police report for the prior shooting in April 1981. At Jim's second trial, his defense attorney argued that responding officers moved items and evidence in Jim's study on the night of the murder. The second jury consisted of six men and six women. Jim was found guilty of murder a second time. The defense began arguing for a third trial because they had new evidence, namely new witnesses who had sworn affidavits that Danny Hansford was violent, unpredictable, and scheming. Two of the men said Danny had approached them to sleep with Jim so he could rob him. Others said Danny carried a 38 caliber revolver and bragged about ripping off Jim. Once again, the guilty verdict was overturned. The Supreme Court ruled that testimony by the responding detective could not be considered expert testimony, since the opinion did not involve complex subject matter. Additionally, they ruled the prosecutor's closing argument was improper. The third trial began in May 1987, with a jury of three men and nine women. This time, a mistrial was called, because the jury could not agree to the verdict. The issue at this trial was an emergency room record which was ambiguously notated with the bagged hands. This was written under nurse assessment rather than orders and treatment, so the defense argued it meant the hands were not bagged until the victim arrived at the emergency room. If this was the case, then a negative gunpowder residue test would be insignificant. Jim appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court that a fourth trial would constitute double jeopardy but the Supreme Court ruled a mistrial could not be considered double jeopardy. The prosecutor boasted he would get a conviction in a fourth trial because two juries had found him guilty and a third almost found him guilty, with 11 jurors voting for the guilty verdict. However, the fourth trial was moved to a different county, and Jim Williams was acquitted. It was a short-lived victory. On Sunday, January 14, 1990, less than five months after his acquittal, 
Jim Williams was found dead in his study. Many say he was laying just a few feet from where Danny Hansford had fallen in 1981. His death was apparently of natural causes, potentially pneumonia. As a result of the two untimely deaths in the Mercer Williams home, particularly the violent demise of Danny Hansford, local legend has it that the house is now haunted. Our next case has also led locals to claim a haunting after the death that occurred there. The events inspired the made-for-TV movie Murder Ordained, made in 1987. The movie centers around Tom Bird, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Emporia, Kansas. Tom was married to Sandra Bird, and the couple had three small children. Tom and Sandy had arrived in Arkansas in 1982. Tom was sent to create a new congregation for an existing church, the Missouri Synod. Tom was the son of a preacher and held graduate degrees in divinity and sacred theology. Sandra had a graduate degree in mathematics, taught at Emporia State University, and was working on another graduate degree in computer math. Within a year, Tom had a new congregation full of young families and a brick church. However, despite this, tragedy was set to befall the young family. The events of Sandy Bird's last night were sketchy, as Tom Bird was inconsistent in his statements to his friends and law enforcement. The couple apparently celebrated a work promotion Sandy had achieved. Tom told friends Sandy had brought hamburgers by the church around 7 p.m. and they ate. Afterwards, Sandy changed clothes and went to see a movie. Around 9.30 p.m. after the movie, they stopped by the house where Sandy grabbed a bottle of wine and a bottle of bourbon. They went back to the church and had a drink and then went to a private club and had two more drinks. They went back to the church at 10.45 p.m., and Sandra dropped Tom off, saying she was going to the university to work. Half an hour later, Tom went for a 2.6-mile jog and waited for Sandy, who said she would be back in about 45 minutes to an hour. When she didn't return, Reverend Bird drove to the university to see if he could find her. He did not see her car, so returned home and began calling around to try and find her. His calls included their babysitter, the hospital, and the local police and sheriff's department. On the morning of July 17, 1983, a partially submerged car and a floating body were found by hikers along the Cottonwood River near the Rocky Ford Bridge outside of Emporia. The car belonged to Tom and Sandy Bird, and the body was that of Sandy. When Sandy was found the next morning, Tom Bird asked deputies, What was she doing out there? We never go out there. Then, oddly, where is it? An autopsy was conducted by Dr. Juan Gabriel, who determined the injuries were consistent with a serious automobile accident. However, officers who responded to the accident investigated the area, and they could see no signs the vehicle had been out of control, had slid, or even made any braking actions before going down the embankment. There were also bloodstains on the bridge and on the trees below, which were not in the path of the vehicle as it went down. Despite that, her death was ruled an accident. However, one Kansas State trooper, John Rule, was not certain it was an accident. He had spent quite a bit of time studying the scene that morning and was perplexed at the lack of skid marks. Additionally confusing was the lack of water in her lungs, 
although she was found face down in the water. And although they had little to go on, John continued digging into the case. Sandy's blood alcohol level did not match Tom's statement that they had several drinks at night. There was just a trace of alcohol in her system. John spoke with Sandy's friends and found out something interesting. Sandy always wore her seatbelt. However, despite all the inconsistencies, the doctor who conducted the autopsy said her injuries were consistent with a car wreck, so John's investigative work went nowhere. Four months later, whispers around town began pointing a finger at the minister when Lorna Anderson's husband was gunned down on K-177 Highway. On Friday, November 6, 1983, on the two-lane highway south of Manhattan, Kansas, Marty Anderson was shot three times in the head. Martin was 34 years old and worked as a hospital technician. He was shot just yards away from his wife, Lorna, and their four young children. Lorna leaned heavily on Reverend Bird to speak to the press for her. Reverend Bird said Lorna had told him they were on the way home after spending the afternoon in Fort Riley and Manhattan when Lorna felt sick and pulled off the road. She walked to the ditch and threw up, then dropped her car keys and had to ask Marty to come help her find them. As they searched the grass in the dark, someone in a dark ski mask came from nowhere. The stranger seemed to go crazy when he saw Martin and subsequently shot Marty several times. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health and also increase my energy. Now, I absolutely love it because I hate taking a dozen pills and vitamins and supplements. So now I've been on AG1 for about a month and a half now, and I love it. Honestly, it doesn't taste like anything super healthy. It feels like I'm drinking a vanilla shake every morning, which is really great. So you're probably wondering, okay, what is this stuff? Now, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Now, these help you start your day off right, and this special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, literally all of the things. AG1 is lifestyle-friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, you can have this because it doesn't have any of the ingredients that go against any particular diet. And here's the thing, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. So right now, at this very second, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. It's literally so easy. Now, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com TCFC. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TCFC to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support, powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day. I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system, and I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best, so sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water, and I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there, and it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel... Like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original black elderberry and was developed by a virologist. So I know I'm getting a great quality product. And you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at SambucolUSA.com. Use Fan15 for 15% off. That's SambucolUSA.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A dot com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. Reverend Bird related that the stranger took Marty's wallet and then grabbed Lorna. As a car came by, he threw Lorna in the ditch and told her not to scream. He held the gun against her head and pulled the trigger, but it just went click and did not fire. After that, the stranger got up and ran away. Afterwards, Lorna waved down a car for assistance, who in turn flagged down a bus to help. Unfortunately, no one could revive Marty, who was the chief medical technologist at the Newman Memorial County Hospital in Nomporia. He was also a captain in the Army Reserves. Reverend Bird also informed everyone the Anderson's eight-year-old daughter had seen the entire thing, but she actually only saw her dad talking to a man, and then sparks fly. Of all the ridiculous things, Investigators tried to figure out if a strawberry sundae is what made Lorna sick. Tom Bird officiated not only his wife's funeral, but Marty Anderson's. Speculation behind closed doors quickly became whispers in town. Marty and Lorna Anderson had a rocky marriage, in part because Lorna's attraction to other men. It was alleged around the town that she had many affairs, and the latest one had been with none other than Reverend Tom Bird. Passionate about sports, Tom Bird met Marty and Lorna Anderson at a volleyball game. Marty shared Tom's passion for sports, and the Andersons would soon become members of the Faith Lutheran Church. The Andersons were not a happy couple. In 1982, Lorna allegedly asked a friend if he knew someone who would kill her husband. The friend laughed it off. Lorna also had divorce papers prepared, but Marty talked her out of filing. In January 1983, Lorna went to work for the Reverend as his part-time church secretary. The Bird's own marriage was suffering. Tom was not happy with Sandy's career, 
and wanted someone to be more of a full-time pastor's wife. The affair started quickly enough. Lorna confided in a friend that she was not happy in her own marriage, beginning the same month she started working for Reverend Bird. Lorna was telling her friend she was very much in love with him. In March of that year, Lorna confided that she and Tom were going to Topeka or Wichita, spending the afternoons together in motels. She also said, he's pretty good in bed, for a minister. She also said to the same friend, I know this sounds awful, but I wish sometimes something would happen to Marty and Tom's wife so we could spend the rest of our lives together. In March of 1983, Tom received a phone call from Lorna around 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Tom was allegedly counseling Lorna, who told him during that phone call she was going to kill herself. Sandy started crying and said, Tom, don't you see she's sinking her hooks deeper into you? Angrily, Tom told Sandy she was cold and unfeeling and left to meet with Lorna. He did not return until 7 p.m. Sandy began having difficulty sleeping and started losing weight. In June 1983, Lorna invited a contractor, Daryl Carter, to the church to meet with her and Reverend Bird. At this meeting, the lovers asked Daryl to help them kill Marty. Daryl said Tom told him he was a man of God, but he planned to kill Marty to help Lorna. The pair had hatched two plans to kill Marty. One was to stage a burglary and to have Marty shot. The other was to stage an accident on a country road where there was a bend, a bridge, and a long embankment down to the river. In July, Sandy spoke with her mother and said she was resigned about her domestic issues with Tom. She told her mother that she was right with God and it was Tom's place to get himself right with God. Shortly after this, Sandy was offered more classes to teach in the fall at the university. Sadly, she would not live to see the fall term. After Marty's death, investigators began connecting the dots for the two deaths. However, they still had little to go on with Sandy's death based on the autopsy. Investigators discovered Marty had a $300,000 life insurance policy. In February 1985, Lorna Anderson was arrested for solicitation to commit murder, and three months later, they arrested Tom Bird on the same charge. Lorna was originally charged in the wrong county, but then charged properly in Lyon County. In August 1984, Tom Bird had been convicted of criminal solicitation and sentenced to two and a half to seven years. In October 1984, as a result of Tom Bird's conviction, Sandy's body was exhumed and a second autopsy conducted by Dr. William Eckert, a certified forensic pathologist. Dr. Eckert noted, additional injuries beyond those noted in the first autopsy. The left shoulder was fractured and there was a laceration on the top of her head, which indicated severe blunt force trauma or impact. Dr. Eckert believed this wound would have rendered Sandy unconscious immediately. Dr. Eckert found multiple injuries on the back of the arms, which he believed were defensive wounds. He also thought these wounds were caused by a tree branch, a baseball bat, or a tire iron. Most notably, Dr. Eckert found no injuries that could have been created by Sandy's ejection from a vehicle. Additional evidence included blood found on the bridge and a tree 20 feet from where Sandy's car came to a stop. 
there was no blood or hair in the vehicle to match that of a car going down an embankment. The left-hand door had been torn off, and accident experts believed her body would have landed between the door and the vehicle, and not in front of the car in the water. Dr. Eckert ruled that she had eaten approximately three hours before her death, which would put her time of death at approximately 10 p.m. Dr. Eckert also disputed what the original autopsy report stated in regards to Sandy not dying for 30 minutes to an hour after she landed in the water. Had she still been alive when she ended up in the water, there would have been water in her lungs. Sandy's watch was also found under the bridge, close to the tree where blood was found. The bridge had one to three inch gaps and investigators believe she had been on the bridge and her watch fell through one of the gaps. There were red plastic cups found under the bridge and at the entrance of the field. Phone records show that Tom and Lorna talked several times a day and two letters were found in Lorna's belongings in which Tom professed his forever love, although he said it was just Christian love. These factors led to Tom Bird being charged with the murder of his wife. Days before Tom's trial began, Lorna Anderson married an old friend, Randy Eldridge. She said the marriage had nothing to do with Tom's trial and that she and Randy had been friends for dozens of years. Tom was found guilty of murder in Sandra's death and sentenced to life in prison. Lorna revealed that he had told her what happened the night Sandy died. He had driven her to the bridge and then hit her with a tool he had taken from the car. He tried to push her off the bridge, but she clung to the railing. He resorted to kicking her until she fell over. Then he drove the car to the edge of the embankment, jumping out before it went over. He ran back home, disposing of his clothes along the way. Lorna said he ran the eight miles barefoot and still had bruises a week later. Lorna's trial was set to begin August 1985. She was charged with two counts of criminal solicitation to commit murder. In a shocking move, days before the trial began, she pleaded guilty to solicitation. At the same time, investigators began draining two ponds near where Marty was shot, eventually recovering what they believed to be the murder weapon. In August 1987, Lorna was involved in a civil trial with an insurance company. During this trial, it was revealed that she had told investigators two years previously that Tom Bird had been the one to pull the trigger when Marty was shot. She told them this just six days after she pleaded guilty for solicitation to commit murder. In 1987, the made-for-TV movie Murder Ordained was released, despite the case still being somewhat open-ended. In October 1988, Lorna's family pleaded with the governor and the parole board to allow Lorna to come home. Her new husband said she was a different woman. However, in November of the same year, she pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for Marty's death. On November 3, 1988, Lorna read this statement in court. On November 4, 1983, Tom Bird and I agreed I would stop my van on a highway in Gary County and I would pretend to lose my car keys so that my husband, Martin Anderson, would have to get out of the van to help look for them. This would enable Tom Bird to come up and shoot him. I did as we had planned, and my husband was killed on November 4, 1983. I gave Tom the 22 caliber woodman that he used to shoot him.
On November 16, 1988, Tom Bird was charged with first-degree murder in the slaying of Marty Anderson. In January 1989, Lorna was sentenced to 15 years to life for the second-degree murder charge. In 1990, Tom Bird, who had remarried while in prison, was found not guilty on the murder charges. Tom Bird was granted parole in 2004 after serving 20 years in prison. Lorna Anderson was granted parole in 2006. She had divorced her second husband five years into the marriage and married Terry Moore in 2004. As of 2017, she's had 12 grandchildren and was the CEO of Interfaith Housing Services. It's difficult to say what Tom Bird is doing after his release. In prison, he had remained active in his ministry. The bridge, where Sandy died, is now called Bird Bridge, and locals claim screams can be heard late at night, and footsteps can be heard across the bridge. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams, who also has an amazing podcast out called Connections that I have the honor of voicing a role for. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or follow him at We Talk of Dreams on Twitter or go to his website, wetalkofdreams.com.